I'm Trevor, and welcome to Catching Up on Cinema. If you aren't familiar with the program, Catching Up on Cinema is a film analysis podcast wherein we introduce each other to films, expand our cinematic horizons, and, in essence, catch up on our cinema. So, it is the month of May 2021, and is once again that time of the month wherein we're going to be doing another Tales from the Shelf episode. Uh, and in joining me in this endeavor, I have my good buddy Brad from the Cinema Speak podcast. How's it going, Brad? Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks again, Trevor, for having me on. Oh, yeah. It's always great to have you, Brad. Um, and so this time around, Brad uh, had the pick for the theme of our Tales from the Shelf. Uh, so, Brad, uh, what what is the theme for this month's Tales from the Shelf? Well, the theme for this month is artful aesthetics. So we are talking about just some of the most beautiful films, beautiful uh, visually films in our collection. And we should say we're talking the actual films, not the specific transfers on the discs. Because uh, honestly, that would that'd be too much uh, work and research to get into. I, I and I don't know enough about. Uh, I don't have a keen enough of an eye to get into the like, you know, specifics of transfers to talk about it for a whole episode. So, yeah, we're just talking about the actual films, visually some of the best-looking ones we have. Yeah, uh, thank you for pointing out that that distinction, um, because in my case, I know this will not be the case for you, Mr. Brad. Uh, (laughs) I do have some uh, DVDs in my stack that I'm potentially going to be sharing on this episode uh if you're not familiar uh brad is not the biggest fan of the dvd format (laughs) Um, uh, i i however am mostly ambivalent towards it i i started collecting it at that point in my life where dvd was the thing to go with so i have a big old shelf full of dvds that i kind of just go every time i look at Uh, But, you know, they're there for a reason. They're a part of my legacy of movie collecting. But uh, folks at home, if you're not aware of the format of a Tales from the Shelf, um, essentially what we're going to be doing here is just uh, playing a little bit of show and tell uh, with our respective film collections. Uh, Both Brad and I uh, are avid film collectors, and uh, the theme is, once again, artful aesthetics. Uh, So we're just going to go back and forth sharing some films that are visual stunners uh, in one way or another. Um, so being as I am the host of Catching Up on Cinema and by extension, Tales from the Shelf, I'm going to flex my uh, creative control muscle here and force poor Brad uh, to share his film first so I can uh, you know, play off of him. <laughs> oh, I can't believe you're doing this to me. I can't believe it. But I guess if I have to go first, um, I guess I will. Um, I should say that like doing these Tales from the Shelf episodes every month Make me realize I got to start buying more blues because there's a few uh, times where I'm like grabbing a movie and I'm like, have I talked about that already? I can't remember. I feel like maybe I have. I try to not like avoid doubling up, especially if it's something I've just recently talked about. So this movie, I'm sure I've brought it up in the past. I don't know if I've specifically called it out, but we're talking specifically the visuals, the aesthetics. So that's why I'm going with this one. Um, it's from a franchise that I know you and I have discussed uh potentially ad nauseum i feel like this franchise comes up every time we talk uh it's from the hannibal lecter franchise and i'm talking about uh michael mann's manhunter uh which i wouldn't say is my favorite hannibal lecter movie no i would still say i prefer silence the lambs i know a lot of people out there the hot take the cool thing now is to say manhunter is better than silence of the lambs i wouldn't go that far but i do love 
Manhunter. And I've got the uh, Scream Factory Collector's Edition Blu-ray, which does have, uh, I believe, two different cuts of the film. It does have the standard and the director's cut. Uh, and, yeah, the visuals in this movie are awesome. Uh, you know, Michael Mann, he's a very visual filmmaker. Um, it is shot by, what's that guy's name? Da- Dante Spinotti. Dante Spinotti, who shot a lot of uh, Michael Mann's films. And uh, I, I love, like, the neon visuals in this. Like, you can even see it on the cover of the Blu-ray. Like, very bright neon colors. But interesting how it's not, like, a movie that takes place in a city. Like, you would think neon colors usually equal, like, city life. Whereas this one, like, some of the sunsets are very uh, distinctive and, uh, you know, interesting blues and all that. Um, and uh, just, like, some great visual storytelling one of my favorite scenes in the movie is the scene where uh, Francis Dollarhide, uh, the red dragon himself, is in the, the van. He's in his van, and he sees his uh, you know love interest. I can't remember her name, but she's walking home with a co-worker, and he spies them. They don't see him. He sees them, and they walk up to her front porch, and there's a great—first of all, the, the music. I can't remember the song name, but the music that plays in that scene is uh, a banger. I love that song. Um, but the way that they shoot it is he's kind of like, just like shrouded in darkness in the van and then it cuts to them and there's this very harsh white backlight on them. And we see them sort of like falling all over each other, the coworker and his love interest. And they're all like almost borderline making out with each other. And you can see he's like losing it. This is where he goes over the edge. But then, uh, at the end of that scene, it cuts back to his love interest and the coworker and that backlight is gone and that little like just taking that away shows oh that was not actually happening that was just what he was seeing whereas if that that backlight you know that weird harsh backlight wasn't there and it just cut to them and they were not making out you'd say wait what had like the the storytelling wouldn't be clear there so that's just a great example of very unique memorable visuals that advance the story and i think there's a ton of stuff like that in this movie and uh yeah it's very visually pleasing movie. Also, just love a lot of the stuff with uh, Francis Dollarhide and his look. And, uh, yeah, great stuff. I love Manhunter. Oh, yeah. No, it, it's been a minute since I've, I've rewatched Manhunter. <clears throat> but it it's pretty outstanding in a lot of ways. Um, what is it? William Peterson, I believe, plays the, the lead character in it. I think so, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I never really got into CSI and whatnot, but um, I... I can see why he, you know, is actually a pretty solid actor. Like he, he turns in a very interesting performance in that. Um, I, w- I want to say I prefer his spin on the character more so than Ed Norton. Yeah. Um, there, there's a, a darkness, there's an intensity to Peterson's take on it that Norton just, he has that kind of like baby faced quality to him that he didn't quite get there. Um, Cause I mean, the talent of that character is supposed to be that he's supposed to be able to get into the headspace of like truly awful, horrific human beings. And he exhibits that pretty well in the film, but I mean, it's a early Michael Mann film. So it has some of that, uh, Miami vice DNA, uh, built into it just a little bit before he turned to, uh, his color palette kind of changed as he like transitioned into the nineties where everything mm-hmm. became like very drab concrete kind of. Mm-hmm. A lot of street lamp lighting, that kind of stuff. I think of like heat or collateral. Um, not a big fan of when he started shooting digital and stuff. Um, I like it in collateral. I like it a lot in collateral. I really do like it in collateral, um, but public enemies, mm, not so much. Um, 
but yeah manhunter is a stunner um the the use of colored lighting and stuff is is the kind of stuff that you were actually starting to see make a like a huge comeback especially in like low budget arenas um but like you said it does have some of those impressionistic touches to it like with the backlighting uh, to signify like an emotional state or something mm-hmm. like that it's it's kind of neat um now 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 we're talking about it, i want to go back and rewatch it because I, I do enjoy it it's just been a minute since yeah, i watched it it's a weird it's not weird but it's just like i feel like once a year maybe once every two years but close to once a year i just get the urge to rewatch it like within the last five or six years it's got to be one of my most rewatched films like i feel like every year i'm just like yeah i kind of want to rewatch manhunter like it's just it really is very watchable there's so many standout sequences and uh yeah and then i usually end up watching silence of the lambs spun off of that and then i usually stop there <laughs> I mean that that's probably wise. Yeah. Um, but, but it's funny you you bring up Manhunter though cuz uh I I think uh I think it's because it's on the Criterion channel right now, but a lot of film critics that I follow have all been mentioning um Tom Tom Noonan's uh I think it was his directorial debut. Uh, it's called What Happened Was. Mm. Um I haven't seen it myself, but it's just something that just within the past couple of weeks, like I said, I've I've heard some semi high profile film critics talking about it so i guess tom noonan's out there in the ether somehow yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, i'll have to check that out yeah if you have criterion channel maybe check it out because i've always i've always liked tom noonan he's a eccentric performer oh eccentric yeah eccentric as fuck but yeah mm-hmm. very 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 talented great uh, can... voice too like he's he's great in this oh yeah no he he's you can ask him to do almost anything and he'll deliver um he's often you know typecast as creepy folks but i mean his character in heat for instance i mean carrying on the director and and actor relationship it's just like a he's just like a friendly old man in a wheelchair Mm. (laughs) he's he's like so chummy it's like oh you're you're the man you're the red dragon okay (laughs) (laughs) and like and uh they they actually kind of had a joke about that in last action hero where um there's him in full makeup where he's like a crazed axe killer and then you see him on the red carpet, and he's he's Tom Noonan. <laughs> he's just he's really really tall, but he's really really friendly. <laughs> did you it's bring Did you bring that up because uh, you already watched the Last Action Hero 4K, which just came out today? Did you already uh, pop it in and watch it? I unfortunately have not, Brad. Thanks okay. for peeling back a, an, an open wound. Uh, I can't find it anywhere. Oh really? Uh, I haven't even tried yeah, to. I totally, I totally would have bought that today if I had been able to scout it someplace. But um, it's difficult to come by, at least in my neck of the woods. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, but definitely on the shopping list, though. Yeah, yeah. I was like, I mean, it just came out today. Maybe he uh, took the day off of work and just sat home and watched Last Action Hero 4K. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I, I i called in on the on the office sick line <laughs> couldn't come in today last action hero click yeah. <laughs> uh well i am not entirely sure where to pivot from uh so oh you did say uh manhunter and the hannibal lecter franchise are something that you you often come back to we often come back to and yeah. by extension kyle also he, he always brings that shit up uh so I'm going to be a dick and uh, bring up something that I bring up all the fucking time. Then uh, neither of you bring up all the fucking time. So deal with it. Uh, I have here three different editions of this film. I have a uh, two-disc uh, steel clamshell case for Akira. I have 
the Blu-ray, and then I have the recent 4K. Uh, so this was, of course, Akira, a Japanese animated film from 1988, uh, directed by Katsuhiro Otomo, uh, who, funny enough, it seems like he, after Akira, uh, he did almost ex exclusively like anthology animation films. Um, and I believe he continued authoring manga after the fact. Um, but for the most part, like he, he mostly did short films after this. Um, this, this film is like utterly revolutionary um, in so many ways. Uh, from a visual standpoint, uh, from an aesthetic standpoint, it kind of piggybacks on Blade Runner quite a bit in terms of some of the conceptual art and whatnot. But it totally makes it its own. And to some degree, it, it's nearly as influential as Blade Runner, even though it came out six years after the fact. But uh, just on a sheer technical level, this movie is absolutely stunning. Uh, There's so many shots in here that if you if you have any conception of how the shit came together, it's like, oh, my God, <laughs> like like the amount of time and, and effort and talent required to pull off some of these ideas. Some of some of these shots are ambitious in ways that's like, do you hate your animators? Do you, do you, are you trying to kill them? <laughs> because what you're asking of them is like, you, you ask the impossible. It's like you, you're asking your animators to telepathically pull an X-Wing out of a swamp. Um, but they fucking did it. There's, for instance, there, there's a shot that it's basically just the camera rampaging down a hallway. And it's this long, sustained, like 20, almost 30 second shot. And it's moving at super high velocity, and it's so detailed, and the and the motion blur is so highly coordinated. But but you need to remind yourself that that hallway doesn't exist, and it's changing perspective, like every time it takes a twist or a turn. And any time you shift perspective in art, in art and animation, that, that takes a lot of brain bandwidth to to figure out the logistics of it. And it's just long, sustained shot that contributes nothing to the narrative <laughs> and has it really doesn't need to be there. But somebody decided it it had to be. Um, but yeah, just the sheer level of detail from shot to shot in the film is so incredible. Uh, it's one of the very few uh, Japanese animated films that attempts to do lip sync. Like the, the mouth movements are actually tailored to mm. the syllables. Mm -hmm. um, that's very rare in Japanese animation, even today. Um, so right off the bat, you can like it's the kind of thing you maybe you don't notice it, but your brain certainly does. Where it's like, oh wow, the, those mouth movements sync up a little better than I'm used to seeing. Um, but yeah, just from from top to bottom, it's just a incredibly stellar production. Uh, the just sheer scale of some of the background paintings and the details therein, it's mind blowing. And uh, on top of that, they like I said, they, there's so much ambition in the production that is is almost ridiculous. Like they they do things like slow motion, um, involving um, bodies moving through space. That so you, you have to factor in that you're not only having to like animate a character model on point, you're also having to factor in time and physics and, and all of these details and very little of it appears to be rotoscoped which is you know an animator's best friend in some cases when it comes to uh, especially human movement um, but on top of that the movie also has extensive crowd sequences where it's it's very obvious that oh my god that is like a hundred hand animated characters all moving with agency and physics behind them 
and it's all coming from a person's hand and a, and a paintbrush essentially <laughs> and this was back in the day when they didn't have digital technology either so it the timing of the release also increases its prestige level in terms of yeah. its visual appeal but even discounting the technical stuff which i i'm trying my best to articulate and probably failing miserably um it's astounding to look at um it, it still kind of knocks me on my ass every time every, the opening sequence every time i watch the opening motorcycle chase i'm just I'm, I'm a kid again and i'm stunned by it all over again um and it's also noteworthy that like the quality never really significantly dips in the film it's fairly consistent all the way through and that is not the case in a lot of japanese animated films in particular um Dis- disney seems to have always been fairly consistent with their feature films in particular Japanese animation, no, a lot of corners get cut, um, but not in the case of this one. But um, I've, I've said, oh, music as well. I know we're talking mostly visuals, but um, I think the collective is called the Geno Yamashiro Gumi, and it's as far as I read, it's a it's a collective of like hundreds of amateurs, so non musicians, and I think the instrumentation is a it's an instrument. I think it's a gamelan. I, I, uh, I remember we had players of that, that instrument at my college. It's an Indonesian like xylophone, essentially. Oh. Uh, so it has like a, a tinny charm quality to it. Um, a lot of it is that and uh, a lot of like similar instruments, but with a more wood sound to it and like hundreds of amateur vocalists. So, so not choir performers, just p- human voices, like making noises over each other. Kind of how they did the... Uh, uh, Hans Zimmer did the Dark Knight Rises chance, where mm. I think, uh, am I right, Brad? Didn't they like crowdsource that? They just like called out to the internet, like, "Here's a phrase, sing it into a microphone, and we'll put it in the movie." That sounds familiar. That sounds familiar. Yeah, I think it was the the Deshi Basara. Um, okay. The the chant they do, like, it's kind of like Bane's theme, but it's also just the theme of that pit, basically. I think that's how they did that. Was they just took thousands and thousands of human voices saying that phrase and layered the like mixed them um, to the point that's like it, it's everybody. It's not a single person. It's not a choir. It's just eh, it's the entire planet. <laughs> Save that for when we do a uh, Sonic aesthetic uh, episode. <laughs> well, we did stupendous scores a while back. Uh, that's true. We, but, that is true. But in in all of our months of doing a Tales from the Shelf. Um, I don't think we've ever done a sequel episode, um, mm, so maybe yeah, we're due for that, that one. That could be good. Um, yeah. You know, mentioning, uh, you know, Akira being animated, uh, I've, I've got one animated film over here as well, but just the idea of, in terms of aesthetics, you know, an animated film is almost like the perfect film to grab for this uh, episode because literally you're making everything like everything is your creation like in in theory you have complete control over the aesthetic now like you said sometimes corners need to be cut and you know you can't do everything exactly how you want it but um it certainly gives you much more control than actually filming actors and all all that stuff oh yeah absolutely i mean everything has to be created from the ground up um, in some ways, I, I want to say that's probably part of the appeal for certain directors where it's like, ooh, you mean I get complete and total control over every single shot and image in this film? <laughs> well, that could be dangerous. Yeah, well, I guess that might be one of, yeah, well, I've, I'll, that probably come, will come up when I talk about the animated film I have here. Um, 
but I don't. I'm not going to get good, get to that one just yet. If that's okay, I'm gonna. Yeah, yeah. Because I I got a good pivot here. It's simply because you said you own three uh, editions of Akira. I'm going to highlight a film I own three editions of. <laughs> now this one, it's kind of my hot take. Now this isn't really a hot take necessarily, but right now I want to focus specifically on the work of a cinematographer who I think is extremely underrated. So right now I want to highlight the amazing, the delectable Dean Cundy. Now Dean Cundy, I think is underrated, not because he worked on underseen or underrated movies, but because he shot so many amazing films and I feel like he never gets much credit like when people are ranking like their favorite cinematographers I never hear people talk about Dean Cundy and I think part of it might be because he's not like a super flashy cinematographer he is very much just like telling the story telling it well but I think in in and of that in in and of that I think there is something to be said for a cinematographer who isn't trying to be flashy like I kind of dislike sometimes when the the visuals in a movie are so like well done that you're kind of just like always getting pulled out of it like uh you know like a lot of the stuff like a Birdman. i love uh emmanuel lubieski or whatever is how you say his name but uh like the visuals in that are amazing and it's kind of like whether for good or bad it, in my opinion kind of distracts from the rest of the film but anyway so i love dean cundy simply because he is just a great quality cinematographer who gets the job done and i respect that he's the blue collar cinematographer and i love that about him so i mean i was thinking i was like i want to highlight dean cundy what movie should i pick and i mean he's done so many classics i mean you got jurassic park you've got uh the three back to the future films who framed roger rabbit big trouble in little china um psycho 2 underrated psycho 2 with the thing uh, Escape from New York, and I'm going to highlight a, one of his early credits, and that is, of course, John Carpenter's classic, Halloween, which I own here on 4K. I've got the Halloween complete collection, and I've got the uh, digibook of the uh, original. So take your pick on which one you want. But, uh, you know, you don't really walk away from Halloween going like, it's not the movie that ends and you're like, oh my gosh, the visuals in that were amazing. You know, whereas Birdman, the first thing you might say when you leave the theater is, oh, that movie had amazing visuals. No, you're probably going to talk about the, the scares in Halloween or the music or, you know, stuff like that. But I think there are some awesome visuals, especially considering the budget and comparing it to other slashers that spun off from this. I mean, this film is above and beyond all of those. And a lot of that is owed to John Carpenter as well. But, I mean, Dean Cundy, a lot of the nighttime stuff is amazing in this. I love the shot when uh, Jamie Lee Curtis is leaving the, I forget the family's names, but the house where she finds her friends dead. She leaves the house. She runs across the street. There's that shot of Michael Myers, like his silhouette walking through the darkness. That is an awesome shot. Very creepy. And there's a lot of visual, quote unquote, scares in this film as well. And that obviously is owed in part to the, uh, delectable Dean Cundy. Um, I just think he deserves a shout out. And I was like, this is my time to get on a soapbox and tell people that don't sleep on Dean. I mean, I, I will say, I know he only did a couple films with Spielberg, 
But I think right after he did a couple of films with Dean Cundy, he switched over to Janusz Kaminski. And that is the perfect example of somebody who is, you know, maybe a little more visually uh, unique. But in some ways, I think uh, Janusz might have been the downfall of Spielberg. I, I prefer Spielberg's work pre-Janusz, uh, even visually, I think. Uh, like, you know, like those films look great in a sense, but I don't know. I think they take away from a lot of the, uh, the, the story and like, I, I'll take my meat and potatoes, Jurassic park visuals over the, uh, Janusz Kaminski lost world visuals any day of the week. So Dean Cundy, I love the guy. I think out of, I was trying to think of it out of any cinematographer where, uh, who has the most, like in my top 100 which cinematographer is featured most often i think it would be him i think it would be him uh maybe roger deakins would come close but i think it would go to mr dean cundy who is he's the man even though he hasn't done much in the last 20 years or so (laughs) hey man he's been putting in good work for decades yeah Um, yeah i mean it's funny because actually like i i will confess i'm I'm not a hundred percent on top of my cinematographers as much as i am uh directors and actors um but for me i always thought of dean cundy as as uh, the john carpenter guy basically Mm -hmm. like that's how i've always thought of him um but of course he he certainly moved on to bigger other things i wouldn't say better necessarily because john carpenter's pretty good company to keep especially earlier in your career but yeah i always thought of him as like you know halloween and the thing and i think he also worked on the fog and mm-hmm. uh, some other stuff but um for me yeah it was always the two of them i thought of them kind of in the same line of thinking but yeah he always put in very handsome work and sometimes when he got more tools to play with you could tell there was ambition there i mean he always was very good at shooting in service of the story but when you you move into things like the thing there's a there's some interesting things that are being done there especially from a lighting standpoint Mm -hmm. uh it's really really cool very ambitious stuff that really lends a lot of texture to the film um but yeah i've always liked him quite a bit deacons is one of those names that gets thrown out there so often um but then when i really think about it's like you know i i don't think i don't think his cinematography means as much to me as maybe some other people out there i i think a lot of his uh the types of films that he works on tend to be of a certain scale that mm-hmm. are very attention getting and also he's one of the very few cinematographers who seems to have like a little bit of a public profile yeah and that in that i know a little bit about his personality that apparently he's the type of person who will put his foot down and butt heads with the director if he disagrees with them um, I can't say that much about almost anyone uh, in that particular field. Like I, to say that I know anything about a cinematographer's personality that tells you that he has a little bit of a public profile more so than some other folks. But uh, Janusz is is funny because like I could be talking directly out my ass, but I want to say that like part of that it, it's like a it almost represents like a a moment in time, like a, a transition from the analog to the digital age where Kundi, you know, he put in work for, I'm sure Janusz as well, um, but in Dean Kundi's case, he had plenty of credits, you know, working in the 100% practical realm and uh, optical realm. Um, whereas when I think of like the, the Janusz era of Spielberg, I think of that like 
blown out windows like ultra high gloss look like mm-hmm. minority report for instance i think was was that him that worked on that i believe it was um, yeah that and uh war of the worlds both movies i enjoy but from a visual standpoint they're a little bit gross to some degree mm-hmm. where it's like they're they're simultaneously like dingy but also like the the lighting has a sharpness to it like imagine you're looking at a light source reflected off of a, a recently sharpened blade or something uh, do, does that compute at all am i am i able yeah. to verbalize that okay no i mean i definitely get what you're saying and i agree and i'm, I'm just kind of looking at i mean this might not be fair to Yanuj, but like some of spielberg's last few movies i mean shot by Yanuj, ready player one i think that movie looks like garbage and that's not all Yanuj's fault that's a lot there's a lot of visual effects and stuff in that film that are just uh aesthetically not pleasing to me but he he owes some of the blame. I mean, the post I didn't think looked good. Um, I mean, yeah. Like, I mean, yeah. He's pretty much shot every <laughs> Spielberg film since uh, Schindler's List. I want to say. Um, yeah, there's a there's a sheen that that comes with his particular brand of lensing that it it's definitely it it's almost a signature of you know two thousands and beyond era Spielberg, like from a visual standpoint it's actually a very good signature where you can look at a few frames from one of those films and kind of like sound it out be like yeah, I, I think this might be a spielberg and then tom hanks walks into the frame and you're like ah yeah it, it's definitely a spielberg. <laughs> can i uh can i just take this moment to get on a not a soapbox but just to make a, a an, an announcement a plea um can i just i want to address steven spielberg directly uh Mr. I, Spielberg, I'll clear the room. I'll, I'll leave you two alone. <laughs> Mr. Spielberg, please. You are. Let me see. Can we? Can you look up an age for me? Can we get an age on this guy, Mr. Spielberg? Spielberg, you're getting up there. Please, dump Yanush. Get rid. You guys have been working together too long. You need a fresh pair of eyes. Dump Yanush. You've maybe got ten years left in you. What, what's his age? What do we got an age? Seventy-four. Here? You maybe got. Maybe 15. Maybe you might have 15 if you go a Clint Eastwood route. But come on, dump Yanush, man. Get out of there. Let's let's get the Cundy comeback coming. Bring Dean back. <laughs> so, I mean, you guys don't even have any kids or nothing. Like, it could be a clean break. <laughs> just be like, my heart belongs to Cundy. It's like, it always did. I just needed, like... 40 fucking years to figure it out. <laughs> I'm you know, sorry, Janusz. I'm sorry, who, Yanni. <laughs> you know who would bring uh, Cundy back, actually? I could see uh, Tarantino doing what he did yeah. with Morricone, being like, oh, yeah. He, he Tarantino would realize he'd be like, we got to get Dean Cundy out of it. This is, we got to get him back for one last big movie. Cundy, get out. And, then, and it would be Tarantino's last movie. Cundy would finally get his Oscar. Boom. Love it. Uh, that would be amazing. I, would, <laughs> I actually, he he totally would do that. Yeah. Um, who who is directing uh, Halloween Kills? I think it's um, the guy who did uh, the last one, uh, David Gordon Green. I want to say. Yeah, yeah, that was who did the the previous one. Uh, maybe if they make a third one, uh, maybe they can bring Dean back for that. Could be. Could be. Yeah. 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 I'm but, curious. Did anybody uh, of note shoot these ones? I don't think so. Not that I'm I mean, recognizing. That, f- that first one is a fairly handsome movie. It does uh, look good. Yeah, I'm just trying to see here if uh, Michael Simons, Simmons, who I don't recognize. Oh, he shot Nerve. I like Nerve. Yeah, I heard that was I heard that was a solid movie overall. Yeah. actually. Um, 
but yeah no that was a handsome movie that halloween yeah. 2018 um, yeah and i'm definitely looking forward to halloween kills especially because they said it's gonna be gory it's like, oh yeah sure why the fuck not <laughs> <laughs> i mean it's a slasher movie why not it's gotta be i mean yeah. that that previous one was mostly fairly tame except for one instance where it's like dude i think that guy's head exploded oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah i definitely got to revisit that one because i think i only saw it the one time but i did like it i did like it yeah we did a uh, kind of very last minute review of it for catching up on cinema back in the day um we our theme was busted that month too so we, we just kind of like figured something out i think that was a like most recent iteration in a long-lived franchise month that's pretty good that's pretty good i i didn't bother to make a graphic for that one that is <laughs> that is not worthy of a, of a brand new graphic that's fair that is fair um, but yeah, that was the same month we did Spectre, and mm. funny enough, we still have yet to get a follow-up. Shit. Still kind of sour about that. I want my bond. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, it, it's going to be here soon. I mean, it'll be the end of the year, but I think I think we're finally locked in, so. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Well, um, once again, I'm left in a position where I'm not entirely positive where to jump to. But No um, Dean Cundy as- movies in that pile? I might have, except like I said, Brad, I'm not as on the ball with this kind of stuff as you are. I'm, I'm, I'm just playing. I'm, I'm just playing. No, I, I totally should be because um, aesthetics are very important in film, especially to me. Um, so that's something I should probably work on. But um, being as you did Halloween, a uh, horror film, uh, I may as well follow up with another horror film. Uh, so this would be uh, Bram Stoker's Ooh, Dracula. That is a good one. Um, How did 4K. I not grab that one? And that was directed by Francis Ford Coppola from 1994. And uh, while you were talking and asking me to look up uh, Senor Spielbergo's uh, age, (laughs) I took it upon myself to look up the uh, cinematographer, and I'll see if I can find him again. I think it was uh, Michael Ballhaus. Uh, So this is a fellow who has worked with Coppola and Scorsese quite a bit. and he's massively accomplished, uh, so make of that what you will. But the uh, point is, he's established. Um, oh, shit, he did. A, he shot uh, What About Bob? Oh, <laughs> directed by Frank Oz. Um, but yeah, he has numerous credits with Scorsese. Um, so he's clearly doing his, his job. He's doing the Lord's work. But um, this is an incredibly handsome film. Um, this is what I like to call a uh, every trick in the book film. Um, the other... Uh, probably the most often cited example of that I give is uh, Peter Dixon's uh, Lord of the Rings. Uh, Those films, uh, please don't hurt me, Kyle, um, don't mean as much to me as I think they do some other people. Um, However, I will give them all the praise in the world um, for their effects work. Um, I, I have a lot of difficulty dealing with the plot and the emotionality of those films. I just cannot get swept up in them i get kind of bored to be honest but um from an from an aesthetic standpoint they're incredible especially when you factor in much like all that bullshit i said about akira um if you actually factor in how these images are being manufactured it takes it to a new level um and what i'm alluding to here is in lord of the rings you have every visual trick that can possibly be implemented in film at that point in time uh right up there on the screen big as life and twice as ugly and uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula from 1994 uh, is very much a similar case 
um, where we're doing all sorts of fancy editing transitions where they're doing these really, really kind of old school, but really mystifying uh, wipe edits and like semi mats where you have like one third of the frame matted with an image with a foreground plate and a background plate, sometimes with miniatures involved, sometimes with animated features involved. Um, there's even like rod puppetry, like very similar to like say uh, the Army of Darkness, like like skeleton attack sequences. Like the, the opening of the film has an entire war sequence that's basically like staged as if you're doing like a like a puppet theater and it fits so beautifully with the aesthetic of the film to the point that it's like this should be fucking cheesy as hell but it works because it, it's it's a work of antiquity like it, it's a story from a bygone age and these are almost these are examples of basically the same type of technology that they would use back then uh, to represent some of these concepts and in fact the movie like goes out of its way to kind of wink at you a few times like there's a sequence where dracula's in london and they they go to an art like an art exhibition or a science ex like exhibition uh showing off like new optics technology and the concept of moving pictures so it's, it's one of those movies where it's like this is a celebration of cinema and what we can accomplish um with all manner of technology and it, it's just a huge special effects showcase uh both in the editing room and you know shot live in production like with all manner of makeup effects technology and as i said there's even like hand-drawn animation optical effects any fucking trick you can imagine and on top of that has a, a beautiful score um, conducted by somebody whose name i cannot pronounce but it's spelt like was chick killer i'm sure we'll go with that but can't help um, you on that one yeah yeah i, I can't pronounce it i'm sorry but it's a wonderful score um and of course the the costuming and the sets are truly spectacular as well and well lit on top of that there's some some of that impressionistic lighting that we were talking about from manhunter um like i remember in particular there's a sequence where uh, dracula is like in a, a batman like a man bat form if you will <laughs> and there's kind of like a a grimy like green light being cast in the room that has no business being there like if we're speaking in realistic terms but it fits the scene really beautifully um but yeah brad what are what are your feelings on this movie yeah I, i'm a big fan of the film um not perfect by any means but like what you said just in terms of the effects and yeah the aesthetics are great like love the makeup the makeup is amazing just the look of dracula is awesome um, so yeah, that's one I, uh, always go back to and, uh, love the film so much that I had to, uh, make a special trip to Walmart when I bought that one. Cause Best Buy didn't have the, uh, really cool embossed slipcover. So I, uh, hopped into the blu-ray.com forums to, I was like, Oh, does this not come with a slipcover? And, uh, they were like, Oh, you can get it at Walmart. Walmart carries it with a slipcover. And so I booked it to Walmart. <laughs> now that's a pleasing aesthetic right there. That's a nice slipcover. <laughs> Hell comes to Frogtown and Brad comes to Best Buy. <laughs> no, I I uh, I have a great deal of appreciation for this film. Like like Brad had said, it is not a perfect film. Um it it does get kind of dull at times. Uh Keanu Reeves and Winona Ryder both uh don't exactly turn in the best performances of their careers. Um, Bill Campbell was there. Um, <laughs> like I, was, I always find it curious that the Rocketeers here, <laughs> but 
and Anthony Hopkins is kind of delightfully weird in it but um I think I thought it was kind of neat that we had that like brief universal horror revival in the 90s we had that and we had the uh, Kenneth Branagh uh, Frankenstein which Mm -hmm. for me personally I derive so much ironic entertainment from that film Um, unlike Bram Stoker's Dracula which I very much appreciate and kind of revere in a lot of ways mostly because it's so goddamn beautiful um Kenneth Branagh's Frankenstein just makes me fucking laugh <laughs> because is it is also very beautiful in some ways. Like some of the sets are incredible, um, strange looking. Uh, they make no goddamn sense. Like that staircase in that mansion is a little too big, and there's no furniture in that mansion. Why is there no furniture? Nobody sits down. Okay, um, but just the 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 melodrama like how 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 some of these emotional peaks and valleys just arrive with with no build up just like people are constantly like swirling around and going oh no <laughs> <laughs> and people just die like in between scene transitions and the camera's always swooping around and everything is dialed up to 11 and again i i've said it numerous times on the show that's that's the movie that taught me as a child that the only way to do good science is to strip down half naked and get all greased up and wrestle a zombie. <laughs> because Dr. Frankenstein and Kenneth Branagh's vision has to be buff, he's got to be covered, he's got to be lathered up in oil, and science is goddamn physical. <laughs> yeah, that, that was when uh, Kenneth Branagh was still kind of in his Shakespeare phase. That's probably why it was so uh, so dramatic. Acting! <laughs> 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 he was swinging for the fences. Yeah, he was. <laughs> I'm, pretty sure, yeah. I'm pretty sure Ian Holm probably took him aside a few times and be like, "Can can can we like calm it down just, just a little <laughs> bit? Just a little bit? <laughs> like, no, absolutely not." <laughs> which I, I which one came out first? Was Dracula? Did that come out first? Uh, I want to say it did, uh, but I'll look it up for you if you like. Um, my understanding was that Dracula kind of kicked the door open and then yeah. they made that one because it was, you know, very successful. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I also remember there was a, a TNT uh, version of the movie that uh, it was the it was the Frankenstein movie that is that had uh, Randy Quaid <laughs> starring as the monster. And I've never been able to see that movie again other than the original television broadcast. And I've always been wanting to. Like, it's one of those things I'm hoping, like, Shout Factory or Scream Factory picks it up someday or something. Yeah, yeah. Because I remember it being not half bad. Like, it was really strange. Like, the the way they created the monster was, like, they you, like, put part of your body through an electrical field, and it manifests in a water tank. So, hmm. kind of like the prestige, I guess. Okay. But in the 90s? Oh, we calling um, Nolan out? We saying he ripped off Randy Quaid's Frankenstein? <laughs> <laughs> the Randy Quaid Frankenstein, clearly the most prestigious form of Mary Shelley's hey, great tale. <laughs> if you're going to rip off something, make sure it's not something super popular and you won't get caught. No, everyone's like, no, it wouldn't. He wouldn't have ripped off a Randy Quaid's Frankenstein. Come on. And it's like, that's exactly what he wants you to think. <laughs> oh, excuse me. I f- totally fucked up the dates. Uh, so Bram Stoker's Dracula is even more impressive now because it's from 1992 uh, which would mean CGI was not exactly ent- not exactly available to them, although it seems like Coppola probably wasn't terribly interested anyway. Um, but Frankenstein, Kenneth Branagh's Frankenstein came out in 94, so I flipped okay. the two. Yeah. 
But yeah, uh, keep that in the back of your mind, Brad. Like if you ever catch wind of a Randy Quaid Frankenstein, don't entirely dismiss it because I remember it being not half bad. <laughs> I'm curious to see it. I am curious to check it out now. Uh, well, I think that's about all I had to say about that one. So, uh, Brad, what do you got next? All right. Well, you know, let's let's dip into uh, an animated film and let's do our let's dip our first toes into the Criterion collection because I've got uh, several Criterions to uh, get into here. Uh, this one is probably my favorite animated film. I would say so. Um, it's also my favorite Wes Anderson film, and that is Fantastic Mr. Fox, which, of course, is a stop-motion animated film. And, you know, really, Wes Anderson, very visual filmmaker. You could take any of his... It, like, if we're talking aesthetics, this guy is dripping with aesthetics. This guy, he is an aesthetic. If you've ever looked at him, he is an aesthetic himself. Um... <laughs> But yeah, I love how each of his films, obviously, you know, they look great. The production design is always out of this world. I mean, Grand Budapest Hotel is insane how good it looks. Um, And I love how each of his films have a very distinctive and unique color palette. I'm not going to say this is my favorite of his color palettes, but like the kind of warm autumn of Fantastic Mr. Fox, I think is perfect for the film. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm kind of a sucker for stop motion animation. Um, I just think it's very impressive. And, uh, I think just in terms of Wes Anderson's films, I think this is his funniest film. I'll be honest. I, even though it's for children, I think it is without a doubt his funniest. Um, and I mean, comparing it to his other animated film, Isle of Dogs, no comparison. I think this is so much better than Isle of Dogs. I was a little disappointed in that. Um, but yeah, it's it's a visual it's a visual wonder, and uh, I I love Fantastic Mr. Fox. It's a great film that I uh, come back to quite often because it's very watchable, and um, was one of the first Wes Anderson films I think I saw actually, because um, I, I think I saw this one in the theater, and I kind of knew a little bit who Wes Anderson was, but. I don't think I had seen any of his films. I mean, maybe I had seen Rushmore, but I doubt it. So, uh, yeah, I was definitely uh, got, got a soft spot for this one. Yeah, uh, I have not seen very many of Wes Anderson's films. However, like you said, the man is an aesthetic unto himself. Like, you just look at the man, like, regardless mm. of his work. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> he's just like, that guy's an artist. <laughs> it's like, wow. Um I'll never forget, like, I, I remember I was in high school, and I think The Life Aquatic had come out fairly recently or something, and I was dumbly, like, kind of dismissive of it, and mm. it kind of got me in, in hot water with this girl that I had a thing for. <laughs> never really made it anywhere with that girl. <laughs> Hopefully it wasn't because of me being dismissive of Wes Anderson. <laughs> she, was a West, she was a West head? Probably still is, if I had to guess. Um but yeah, never forget that. Um, I I have seen Rushmore, um, and the only other film of his that I think I've seen is one that uh, Kyle gave to me uh, because he adores it, and that would be the Grand Budapest Hotel, like you mentioned. Uh, it's gorgeous. In fact, it's sitting right here in front of me. Although now that you're you've mentioned it and we're already talking about the man, I guess I'll cross that off my list. So, thanks, Brad. You just made my job a little bit easier. There we go. Therefore. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that film is is utterly gorgeous. Um, that was the one. I don't know if it was the first film in his filmography that 
introduced the uh, the aspect ratio jokes. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I found that very very charming. Where yeah. different scenes, different shots are done with different aspect ratios, and more often than not, it's to punctuate a certain mood. It's mm-hmm. it's actually there for a reason. It's not just strictly a novelty. Um, unlike Zack Snyder's Justice League, which I to I'm not entirely sure why that why that was. Um, do you know? I think I I can't remember. I read some explanation for it, and it kind of sounded like bullshit to be honest yeah see, folks at home if, you, if you're not aware the Zack snyder cut of justice league is presented in a i think it's four by three yeah like, I think like so. standard definition like like presentation so it's it's like a box as opposed to like your typical widescreen um and they actually like address it right up front my guess and this is just a guess is that maybe it had something to do with effects or something like there's less less in the frame so therefore less to render or something i'm not sure i think it was something in terms of like it being released in imax originally like the idea of the screen being so tall and then just making the entire film just tall i guess i i don't know but i don't know but point is in in wes anderson's case uh, it's done very intentionally and it contributes quite a bit to the end product um, whereas Justice League, I don't, I don't fucking know why the whole movie's <laughs> like, like a box. <laughs> like, why, why, why are we suddenly doing box movies? But, um, Fantastic Mr. Fox has long been on my watch list. Like, cause, like you, I, I adore stop motion. Mm-hmm. I think it's a wonderful art form. I used to do it as a hobby, um, when I was a kid. Yeah. I had my, uh, my Gundam model kits, and I used to hand animate them with a DV cam that my parents got me, and. I, yeah, I, I actually have that itch again. I actually would like to try my hand at it as an adult with actual technical know-how because I was actually shooting those uh, without the benefit of editing. So I was basically like tapping the record button really fast to get a single frame because it didn't have a screenshot like option. <laughs> so like there were certain shots where my hand would jump into frame because I was like trying to stop the thing from falling or like yeah. jump like jumping the gun and trying to move it for the next frame or something it's charming like even now to go back and rewatch but um yeah i I really want to check that one out um because it just looked like you said very warm Mm -hmm. and it looked cozy and fun and i know wes anderson to be a very skillful filmmaker and it just seemed like that kind of movie that would maybe maybe be fun for like a date night or something oh yeah yeah it's definitely a film that i think you could kind of watch with I don't want I don't want to say anybody but you know it is a kids movie but the the humor in it it's not like dirty but I feel like the humor is more for adults because some of the stuff is extremely clever um and uh yeah I think the score is awesome and uh it's it's an awesome little film and uh I I'm a, a kind of a big Wes and I, I guess I'm a Wes head I guess I'm a Wes head I'm uh, me and your ex-girlfriend we at least got that in common I guess but uh yeah, because I find myself going and rewatching his films quite often, and I think uh, Isle of Dogs I would probably actually put at the bottom of the pile for him. I think I still like it, but uh, um, I think I would prefer pretty much every other of his films, even like his early stuff, like Bottle Rocket, which is not as stylized. I think it's a great comedy. Like I think it's very funny. Yeah, doesn't he have a, a new one coming out fairly soon? Yeah, it's, I mean, I think it was supposed to come out last year, and I think it's on the schedule for sometime this year. I don't know when, but I'm very excited for that one. Um, yeah. The French Dispatch, I think it's name, is the name of it. That sounds right. 
Um, yeah, I feel like the Life Aquatic is still maybe a little triggering for me to go back to. <laughs> it's like, God damn it. Because <laughs> like, I know I'm going to watch it. I'll probably really love it. But um, Fantastic Mr. Fox always look really nice to me. But let me ask you, like, in terms of, like, straight up just, like, animation quality, um, does it hold a candle to, like, say, a Leica production or anything like that? I feel like it's a little rougher around the edges, but almost intentionally so. Um, like you can kind of see the seams in it, if you know what I'm saying. Like it's not trying at all to hide the fact that it's stop motion and it's these, you know, tiny, uh, character models. Like it is almost like uh, re- relishing in that fact from what I remember. But I, I think that's an intentional, uh, choice. And I think it, uh, certainly adds to the, to the film's charm. Yeah, that's kind of what I gathered because, like, Leica animation, they those they kind of like almost show off like like their 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 quality of animation is almost like un ungodly. Yeah, like, like yeah. It, it's like this. It's baffling how seem like how silky smooth it is, and some of the some of the maquettes they build, like some of the character props they build, are just utterly ridiculous in in conception. Where it's like, so you made a a big old skeleton the size of a room. And you stop motion animated it with, like, with it hanging from steel cables. Okay, yeah. <laughs> like now you're just showing off. Like the end of their movies always feels like the end of a Jackie Chan movie, where they're just like showing off how they did it, and you're just like, what? Yeah, <laughs> it is impressive, though. It is impressive. It's it's incredibly impressive, but it's also just kind of like how how the fuck. <laughs> But yeah, Mr. Fox seems to it seems like it, it strikes that that nice balance. It's funny mm-hmm. actually. I I watched a, a movie that Kyle lent me the other day. Uh, it's part of the Criterion Collection. It's called A Journey to the Beginning of Time. Uh, it was it's apparently a Czech production from director Carol Zeman. Mm. Um, and it's funny because I put it on and I realized, oh shit, I've actually seen this. I didn't know it was Czech though because it was dubbed in English and I was a little kid and it had dinosaurs so I didn't care where it came from it had dinosaurs <laughs> but anyway it has some stop motion for the dinosaurs and whatnot and it's so goddamn charming because it's bad yeah. like it's sometimes really really good but there's certain things where you notice like shrubbery just kind of moving around because you can tell some asshole bumped it while they're playing with the models <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's like that's not supposed to happen that's clearly a fuck up but you know rolling the like rolling back the animation and going back and redoing it i don't think it was cheap nor easy to do so they're mm. like they probably just did like me as a 13 year old kid and just said fuck it keep going <laughs> we'll fix we'll figure it out just keep going yeah there's something nice about that though i i like yeah that. it it reminds you of of what medium you're dealing with it's like oh yeah this is this is just the simple camera trick of moving a thing and then taking a photo and moving a thing and taking a photo and it there is some comfort that comes with that because like sometimes when you're watching one of those like a productions it's just like I, I don't even i don't even know how you do that like clearly it's a lot of time and effort but there's also a lot of math and computers as well whereas something like mr fox or a carol zeman production it's like no it's some asshole who half knows what he's doing occasionally fucking up the scenery for the scene <laughs> while he's trying de- like trying desperately to smoke and move the model in between exposures. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, there is a charm that comes with that. But, yeah. Um, hmm. Uh, I think being as you did a stop motion film, uh, I'll do something that's novel as well. 
and the novelty comes largely in the form of the media in which it's medium uh, in which it's presented uh, and that would be a film which has been sitting on my shelf for probably years and I just never cracked it open until we until Brad asked me to do this episode about artful aesthetics uh, so that would be loving Vincent oh okay yeah and I believe this was from 2017 and is directed by Dorota Cobiela and Hugh Welchman. And uh, this is a visually astounding film and seems to be a theme with almost everything that I talk about today. Um, a huge part of why it's so visually astounding uh, comes from how it was manufactured. And the, quote, gimmick <laughs> behind this film is that it is an animated film however instead of like traditional hand-painted cells and traditional like traditional animation basically with ink and paint um, this is strictly paint mostly oil paint uh, so every every frame of animation you see in the film is a painting literally um, it's and it's it's arresting like to, to sit down and watch it and see how silky smooth the animation is and to know how it was manufactured lend something to it and on top of that it's a f story about vincent van gogh so it's the story of an artist presented in the style of said artist so it it's a very it's very much a visual experience uh the story is just gripping enough that it 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 retains your interest but just from shot to shot it's really astounding to look upon um, and there's a lot of trickery going on in there as well. Like to, to paint an entire feature length animated film is an incredible feat. Um, they make sure to disclose that, Hey, this is the work of like a hundred fucking painters, <laughs> probably working for years straight. Um, and it shows. Um, but if you like put your thinking cap on, you can kind of like sound out a little bit about how this was actually manufactured where you can tell that anytime you move the camera, in animation it tends to be very expensive uh, because movement and perspective cause you to have to not only move the characters and the props in the scene you also have to move the the scene um, and adjusting for the perspective means not only are you moving the moving objects in that frame you're also having to literally manufacture the space around that frame uh, every frame um, so they do a lot of things where the camera quote is locked down and we have a static background with characters and props that are moving. And you can tell that it's like, okay, they, they found a way to probably do like the equivalent of cell animation with these painted characters where they probably, they probably like painted the characters for each frame uh, and then a few inches of an outline around them in a color tone with a texture that matches the background that they're moving through. Um, and it's a seamless product. Like you, you do not, it doesn't detract from the experience at all. It's just you can tell that some corners did have to be cut. Otherwise, this would be utter madness. <laughs> um, but, but then they take all that stuff that I was just going on and on and on about, and they throw it out the window from time to time where they do these really ambitious shots where we have tracking shots where every frame of it, the entire presentation of the frame had to be manufactured. So it's not just the characters moving in the scene. It's the background in addition to that. And it's like, whoa, that was incredible. Um, and there's a lot of instances of that. Um, and there's a lot of really gorgeous transitions because the film is actually presented in two different styles. One that's very vibrant and colorful and has kind of a kind of a meaty texture to it. 
Um, but then there's also these photorealistic black and white sequences um, that are rendered in a totally different style. But the transitions between those two spaces are always very seamless and creative as fuck. Um, <laughs> but it's also funny seeing some like familiar faces pop up in the film, like Chris O'Dowd, who is just one of those guys who even when he's not being funny, he still kind of makes me just like giggle a little bit just because he always has that quality to him. He's kind of like John C. Riley. It's like mm-hmm. John C. Riley does serious films, or at least he used to anyway, before he met Will Ferrell. <laughs> but every time he's on screen, I just kind of fucking laugh at him. <laughs> it's the same with Chris O'Dowd. Yeah, I mean, especially Chris O'Dowd in Gal Gadot's Imagine video. Uh, probably his uh, funniest work yet. <laughs> oh, I have not subjected myself to that. Although oh, you it's have a, it? It's, in, it's inescapable. Like, like if you've listened to a podcast or watched a YouTube video, you've... <laughs> you've seen a chunk of it but i always like i never actually watched the whole thing straight through classic it's classic (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah this movie is utterly gorgeous um what's really funny about the narrative though brad and i don't know if this joke would translate to you um but um when you're watching it with with my background um i i remember playing a lot of like pc adventure games and stuff and a lot of those types of games tended to be presented in something called a FMV, full motion video. So it'd be like early CD based games. And sometimes they'd go to the trouble to like film live actors and like just have them do scenes on the set. And then your involvement as the player consists of just like clicking dialogue options. Mm-hmm. And then the CD skips to that video clip where that person issues a response. And then everybody returns to their neutral stance. <laughs> so much of this movie felt like I was playing one of those games <laughs> because it is a detective story. And a lot of those PC point and click adventure games were detective stories. And it's like, tell me about Vincent. Well, let me tell you about Vincent. Re- return to neutral posture. Cut, cut, <laughs> cut to like waist up shot of both people. I have another question for you. It's pretty spot <laughs> on. That is pretty spot on. <laughs> it's so goofy, but it's just an observation. It doesn't detract from the film. It's just the whole time I was watching it. It doesn't help that uh, the film is rotoscoped. Um, so they did film all these actors in live action and then use use the live action footage as a guide for the animation. Um, so <laughs> a lot of those PC games, in fact, a couple of really high profile ones were presented in the exact same graphical format. Um, so that contributes to me having my wires crossed about rotoscope detective stories <laughs> where people interrogate each other. <laughs> Um, but yeah, uh, this this movie was a joy to watch. Um, like I said, the story is not exactly why you're showing up. It's more just the audiovisual experience and just to see like, holy fucking shit, they pulled it off. Um, because whoever decided this is what they wanted to do with the next three, four years of their life or whatever, I mean, cool, but that was quite the commitment and stuck the landing. So good on you. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I watched this film, I think the year it came out and uh i was just curious you know it's great about letterboxd i was like how much did i like this movie i think i liked it i gave it a four out of five i liked it quite a bit um and i feel like if, if it was only me just liking the aesthetics it would have been like a 3.5 maybe a three but i must have, you know i i got something out of it for sure but yeah it's definitely a beautiful uh achievement for sure that's a great pick for aesthetics um and you know like you said these uh hundred or so uh artists who spent years working on this film and then uh the film does get nominated for best animated feature but uh loses pixar's coco so there you go 
Um, which I would say, I think this film way better than Coco. Not even just from an aesthetic perspective. I uh, not a, not a big fan of Coco, but I Coco is also triggering. I won't get into why. <laughs> God damn it, Brad! You're pushing all my buttons today. Hey, I mean, in terms of aesthetic, the the bridge crossing the bridge to the undead sequence. That does look nice. I'll give you that one. That is that is an artful aesthetic. But other than that, give it to Loving Vincent. That would have had my vote if I was part of the Academy. They won't let me in, though. <laughs> too many hot takes. <laughs> this guy. This guy's got too many. He's got too many burning hot opinions on things. <laughs> he's too much of a, a Dean Cundy boy. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. like, can't have him in here. Uh, but I think I'm about done with Loving Vincent. But... Um, Last thing I just wanted to say, like, have you heard any talk about this movie since since it came out? Uh, I forgot it existed. I forgot I had even watched it. I, me too, until I looked at my shelf and realized, oh, shit, I never watched that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, well, yeah, I don't even hear it whispered about. It's so weird to me that it's, like, it's such a, like, groundbreaking achievement in, such, in so many ways, and yet nobody seems to give a shit. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. It's, like... You know, visually, it certainly is an achievement. But beyond that, I mean, I must have liked something else about it besides just the visuals. Cause I give it a four out of five. And I know if I just was a pre, like, I was just like, oh, that was a technical achievement, I wouldn't have given it a four out of five. But I could see where, you know, people watch it the year it comes out and they're like, it's beautiful. It's an amazing technical achievement. And then beyond that, you know, it's not going to. It's not rewarding to rewatchability or, you know, n- there's not going to be that many first-time viewers that check it out after it's been out for a while except if they have had the blu-ray on their shelf for three years or whatever like you but uh (laughs) i i feel like that's a really good point where it's a movie you seek out it's not a movie that comes to you yeah like 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 coco has the benefit of you know having some emotional resonance to it and you know it's also visually spectacular on top of that but you know a story is important in loving vincent has a decent story but it's not like a, a universal tale that'll grip everybody's heart and soul yeah. it's just like it's just kind of like oh that was nice <laughs> probably not gonna sit down and watch it with kids yeah that 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 too but anyway brad um enough out of me what what do you got oh where do i go next i don't even know let's uh let's go with this one we've already mentioned his name let's just get let's get it over with let's get this over with the greatest cinematographer of all time, Roger Deakins. Everybody, everybody oh, we've got to get him his Oscar. Why are, how is he not at an Oscar? People for years were going on about this guy's Oscar. Meanwhile, Dean Cundy's only gotten one Oscar nomination. Where's his campaign? But anyway, I digress. <laughs> um, we're talking Roger Deakins, and, you know, he is a, he is a great cinematographer. I don't, I don't want to shit, shit on Deakins. I just, uh, you know, this this love, this, you know, holding him up. He he is the breaking bad of cinematographers. You can't say anything bad about him. Don't even try. He needs to start showing up on the set with, like, aviator glasses and a bomber jacket because he's the cool cinematographer. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, he's cool. He's the cool guy nowadays. Yeah, you're he's not cool. He's the bad cool. boy of cinematography. <laughs> yeah, he, you're not cool unless you like Roger Deakins. Well, yeah, as far as cinematographers go, Roger Deakins is the Green Ranger. He is yeah. the Tommy. <laughs> Everybody likes the Tommy. Yeah. I mean, but hey, I, in all fairness, it makes sense because he is he's great. He's 
He's the best. He's the best there's ever been. I mean, what can I say? He's, he's the greatest. I, you know, I don't want to get called out by anybody. Just throw him up on that pillar. Um, but <laughs> no, I do. I do really like uh, him. And in, in a way, a lot of his films, they walk a line of being like flashy, show offy. But in a way, they are sort of uh, efficient in some ways. I think in uh, more recent years, he's gotten a little more flashy and show offy. But some of his early stuff. Uh, with the Coen brothers is gorgeous, incredibly well shot, and, and again, great visual storytelling, and I kind of a lot of time prefer that, and uh, that's why I'm going to highlight uh, a film of his, obviously not underrated in any way, but it is Fargo, and I think uh, in terms of the aesthetics, I love Fargo. First of all, just the, the snow-covered landscapes, the white, I think, look amazing you know it's a very bleak film but i love the look of it i think it looks awesome there's so many great shots like uh william h macy the 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 overhead shot of him walking out to his car and his car is the only one in the middle of that snow-covered parking lot i love that and uh there's some great stuff involving like again this isn't flashy but it's very well done in terms of um marge and her husband uh like some of the visual storytelling with them where a lot of the time they are in the frame together like i i haven't watched the film in a while but very rarely is he not on screen with her like they keep them in the frame together and uh, the one shot that i always think of is uh, where they're having breakfast, and then the the camera kind of follows her a little bit where she goes out the door, but it keeps uh, Norm kind of in the corner of the frame, and we watch her go out, try and start the car. It won't work. She comes back in, and she's like, you got to jump the car. And, uh, you know, not only is that a funny comedic beat where if it didn't hold on both of them, it, you wouldn't get the, the, the punchline joke of it. It wouldn't land. But it also, you know, it goes to show that the fact that it continually shows the two of them together. They're in bed together. They're having Arby's together. Even when she walks out of the house, they're in the frame together. It keeps that relationship as like the core of the movie because they are always together. And uh, I think it's just awesome visual storytelling. And again, a lot of that is due in part to the Coen brothers. Um, but, you know, of course, Deacons is the one who shoots it. And um, he does a brilliant job with that. I mean, he's brilliant. What can I say? He's he's brilliant. He's the cool, brilliant cinematographer. And I love his work on Fargo. Oh, yeah. No, it's a it's a gorgeous movie in so many ways. Um, that That's a movie that comes to my mind like two, three times a year. Mm-hmm. Um, I I probably would watch it that many times a year if I could. Um, I actually don't own that one. In fact, yeah. I, I don't know if I own a Coen Brothers movie, to be honest. Um, but the funny thing about it, though, is for me, like the the thing that jumps into my mind um, isn't so much the visual. It, it's the, the music. Music, um, yeah. The, Carter Burwell is great. I love the music in this. The, the music in that film is it's a earworm for me. Like that that main theme that plays over many instances in the film, it, it, it always comes back to me. It's just like, man, now I want to watch Fargo. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but no, it's a, it's a fantastic movie. And from a visual standpoint, they make, like you said, very, very great use of the locales, like just the, the barren wastes of, of the snow plains. It's, it lends it a really interesting atmosphere because yeah. you have, 
You know, you have Marge, who's basically one of the most warm characters in cinematic history, who, like you said, is basically a package deal with her her guy, <laughs> um, but set amid this like almost like it almost looks like a like a environmental disaster or something <laughs> like like a, a the snowpocalypse or something. Uh, so it's an interesting contrast, but they, I, Deacon's his contribution to the film is is very much felt. Uh, just based on the examples you cited, in particular that that really famous shot of William H Macy in that parking lot. Yeah, yeah. Ooh, that that ice scraper. That that is frustration embodied. Yeah. <laughs> it's like we've all been there, and yeah, it's it's always lonely. It's one of those things where you you got to get out that one primal scream, and then very shortly thereafter, you got to look around see if anybody saw that. And in his case, no. Nobody cares. <laughs> it's like, oh, you're you're in the depths of hell. Like, like you're everything in your world is going to shit. Well, nobody cares. <laughs> Good luck yeah. starting your car, asshole. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Fargo for me is like pretty close to a perfect movie. I mean, in terms of just like the crossover of my personal preferences and it being just like outstandingly made across the board. I mean visually like we said the music performances are great uh interesting story thematically it's a very rich film i mean it it really is close to a perfect movie i would say um and i mean i think i would say it's probably my favorite coen brothers film i do love no country for old men but uh, i think i would give the the edge to this one here very nice um yeah i i need to re- revisit no country for old men um, it's been a long time, very long time, probably since the year it came out, and Kyle Kyle references it endlessly, <laughs> so I feel like I need to get a refresher so I can keep up or something. But yeah, the the Coenses are uh, they're always fantastic, but unfortunately, very similar to Wes Anderson, I actually do not have the most familiarity with their filmography, more their reputation, I yeah. guess. Uh, so they're they're kind of a weak spot actually in terms of my film knowledge. Um, but thanks, Brad. No. Yeah. <laughs> now and I'm going to have to go watch Fargo again. <laughs> real quick, just I just want to, every time I bring up Fargo, I just have to mention this. Um, yep. At the Golden Globes, it was nominated for Best Musical or Comedy Picture, which, I mean, it's got funny moments, but I would not think of Fargo as a comedy. But, uh, you know, there you go. I just always think that's very interesting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a pitch black comedy. Yeah. Um, I think... If memory serves, I think Wolf of Wall Street was also labeled as a comedy. I, um, I think that is much more comedic. That's than much this. more comedic. Yeah. But yeah, Fargo it gets pretty fucking dark from yeah. time to time. Um, thankfully, when I did watch it with my girlfriend, she did laugh when you're supposed to laugh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. I was like, this isn't too like like harsh for you, is it? <laughs> it's like I know that dude just got shot in the fucking head, <laughs> but trust me, it's funny. <laughs> <laughs> But no, it worked out. It was yeah. fun. <laughs> okay, that's good. That's good. Uh, well, I'm not entirely sure where to bounce from here. Um, so I'm gonna throw you a curve. I'm gonna throw you and myself a curveball because okay. I pulled this off the shelf. Um, not entirely sure as to why, but fuck it, we're doing it. We'll do it live. Um, so I have here a Japanese Blu-ray. Uh, imported and this is Sekigahara Um, this is directed by Masato Harada who apparently does a lot of 
um, historical dramas in Japan. Um, this is the only film of his I have seen, um, but this is kind of a, a, a historical costume drama in a lot of ways. Mm. Um, not something I have very much of on my shelf, which is probably why I pulled it off, um, because I, costume dramas are not really something that I'm terribly drawn to. Um, but this, this is a very, very handsome film. Um, and it also has an interesting subject matter because uh, the, the title of the film was taken from a location, um, which was this, it's kind of like, a, I don't want to go into too much detail, but it's basically like the equivalent of like Japanese Gettysburg, I guess. Okay. So it's the site of a decisive battle um, in the Edo period of Japan's history. Uh, so this was kind of one of the major steps towards modernization in the country's history. This was like the battle that would decide um, who was going to rule the entire country because everything was kind of split up for a very long time preceding this. So this was like a huge grand battle that would decide the fate of the country for like a few hundred years, basically. Um, and it's also like staged during a time where gunpowder was available. Uh, so warfare was in transition. Um, so the technology was like swords and spears. Oh yeah, and some rifles and cannons on top of that. Um, but the real appeal of the movie is just the visuals. Um, it's mostly costuming, um, settings as well, like the the locations and and so many of like the palaces that we we get to visit. Everything feels very authentic, and it has like a really awesome naturalistic texture to it. And a lot of the costuming is really it's like fanciful, but not exaggerated. Like it's not so over the top that's like you you couldn't conceive of anyone actually wearing that shit in real life um but part of what's interesting about the movie is that the battle is just the end of the movie uh, it's actually kind of a dull movie for most of its <laughs> runtime but what's funny about it is that it's like a lot of it is just like um showing off like court politics like so showing off like what it means to be a lord and how shitty it is to like get anything done. A lot of it has to do with not not so much bureaucracy, but just like catty politicians kind of make take like sniping each other with all all manner of bullshit. Like there's an entire like story arc in the middle of the movie about an instance where our protagonist like I think he like handed a bamboo reed to one of the high regents like in an improper manner. And so everybody was like, "Oh shit, he's going to call war on his ass." <laughs> it's like <laughs> Because he because he handed him a fucking rod in a weird way, it's like yeah, it's just decorum, man. It matters. It like etiquette and protocol fucking matters, man, Ouch. in ancient Japan. <laughs> but it's a it's a really fascinating film to watch because it does not give a single fuck about how much you're paying attention to it or how much background knowledge you have as to who all these personalities are or what they represent. It just fucking goes and it it pays no mind to trying to engross you in the story. It just, it just rolls. Um, in that way it's, it's very alienating. Um, but because the visuals are so sumptuous, it, I find it doesn't bother me very much. Um, and a lot of the characters are visually represented so well that even if you can't remember anybody's name, you remember their costume, you remember their colors, you remember their, their basic silhouette. Um, and then when it does finally come time for the battle, it's presented in an interesting way where it's not the most visually spectacular thing you'll ever see, but it has like a a rawness to it that is in like stark contrast to all the courtroom politics we've seen in the film up till then, where it's like, oh shit, this is grimy and gritty, where it's like, it, it looks like a, like a, like 
like a rugby scrimmage or something <laughs> like, it, like it like everybody's covered in mud and like people are being stepped on and limbs are getting cut off and stuff and you know the whole hour and a half of the movie up to that point has been just like old men in very 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 fancy kimonos just kind of sitting around and doing tea ceremonies <laughs> and it's like oh shit <laughs> shit got real <laughs> um but yeah it's a it's not a spectacular movie by any means i would not recommend it to anybody um anybody who doesn't have a some degree of interest in the source material like in the historical event um but just from a visual standpoint audio visual actually the soundtrack for it's quite good as well um there's a lot of cool stuff to see mostly having to do with costuming um as opposed to cinematography honestly now did you say what year that came out uh 2017 oh so it's a recent film okay yeah yeah all right yeah. yeah um in terms of scale it's not on the level of like kurosawa's like ron or something like that um but it's still quite handsome like it's not as grand or epic as that was but it's still pretty impressive i mean it sounds pretty interesting i mean i like the idea uh conceptually like you know this kind of uh stodgy build up and then it end in this like sort of bloodbath uh in the big sort of final sequence i i kind of like that idea that is that is pretty cool actually yeah and i'm i'm not doing the best job of illustrating the narrative cuz the the actual story is about a person who's seeking righteousness in a in a political climate that does not favor that at all um and so we get to see him like be very stoic in the face of all sorts all manner of corruption um and what's really fascinating about it is that like when it does get to the the battle sequence his participation in it as a general consists of like physically like running up and down hills trying to trying to rally other warlords to his cause and them all kind of shitting on him and being catty bitches about it it's just like, hey, like I gave you some stuff like a few months ago. I I was very kind to you and your people. Like I thought we had a thing going, and they're like, nah. I th- I, th- I think I got all dressed up for battle for nothing. I don't think I want to fight today. And it's it's very frustrating. And they do a very good job of having like his physical like frustration and f- fatigue manifest on the battlefield as well. Where it's like we keep cutting back and forth between him just being despondent and knowing knowing everything is going to shit, and then like actually showing the people who those consequences fall upon, i.e., getting stabbed. <laughs> uh, it's it's a pretty handsome film, and I actually might want to check out some of this director's other stuff because he has covered some other material that I'm also interested in. Hmm. Yeah, it sounds pretty good. It sounds very much like. Uh... You know, when you think of artful aesthetics, it sounds like that's the kind of film that comes to mind. It's very pretty. In fact, yeah. there's a Uncle Knickknack summer wardrobe moment where, <laughs> where it's, um, some guy gets pissed off because uh, he's being asked to like move from one end of town to the other, and he's like, "Oh, well, I have to get my spring wardrobe out for that." It's like, "What?" It's like, "Yes, it's it's part of Japanese ritual. I I have to have my traveling garb in order to leave the house." <laughs> it's like. So that'll take how long? It's like quite a while. <laughs> I bring a bring a fucking sleeping bag. <laughs> it's it's interesting. It, it's an interesting movie, I think, for anybody who's interested in this particular subject matter. But beyond that, I I think it would probably be very boring, <laughs> to mm-hmm. be honest. Yeah. Um. That's enough of that. Uh, Brad, what do you got, sir? 
All right, well, I'm going to go with a film that I actually uh, know I have talked about on a previous episode. I realize that now, but I think uh, I got to bring it up because I think it's a gorgeous movie. And that is uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's The Master, which I actually brought up uh, when we talked about stupendous scores because I do love the score in this film. But this movie visually is amazing. Now, it was shot on 65 millimeter. Uh, and I guess it was the first film in like 20 some years to do it. Like, I think the last time that happened was like in the nineties and then Paul Thomas Anderson chose to do it for this film to give it a very distinctive style. And I think you can certainly see that in the visuals, like the visuals are very striking. A lot of the stuff early on, like there's tons of great, you know, beautiful landscape vista shot like there's uh the stuff on with him on the ship is just amazing like it looks so good the stuff where he's uh in the in the field and he the great tracking shot of him running away from the the workers in the field they're trying to kill him after he uh, accidentally poisoned a man um there's some great early visuals and then it does get into a lot of like just very much like quiet one-on-one scenes but uh, I think, you know, the way they shot it certainly uh, lends it a unique look. And uh, let me see if I can pull up the cinematographer's name here. Because he hasn't really done much uh, since this. Um, I'm going to butcher his name. Mihai Malimair, Mihai Malimair Jr., um, who I uh, guess he shot Jojo Rabbit would maybe be his most uh, other famous credit. Um, and he did the, the Liam Neeson movie, a walk among tombstones. I mean, he hasn't really shot anything like too high. I mean, I guess Jojo rabbit was a, you know, best picture nominee, but he hasn't done anything quite like at the level of the master. So I don't know if it's, you know, I'm sure obviously Paul Thomas Anderson had a lot of say in the visuals of the film. So certainly that contributed um you've got the, the the motorcycle sequence towards the end of the film looks great yeah I, I just love the uh visuals in this film and uh this was maybe i mentioned this when we did the scores this was the first movie i ever saw in theaters all by myself where it's like you know because uh, i saw this it would, would have been freshman year of college for me and uh i i think yeah i think it was freshman year yeah um you know, until then, it was always like, oh, it's too uh, awkward to go see a movie by myself. I can't do that. And then I went and saw The Master by myself, and these images on the big screen just blew me away. And I said, I'm going to do this more often. And I've never looked back since. You know, I still have yet to do that, honestly. Yeah? Um, yeah, I've never gone to see a movie solo. Um, you are uh, in for a treat, my friend. <laughs> yeah, I'll have to pick a good one sometime, because, yeah, that's something I should do. I'm a grown-ass man but (laughs) but, um i actually haven't seen the master and i'm still kicking myself over it because i actually had an invite um but then the person who invited me kind of flaked at the last minute and to this day i still haven't gone to see it but Mm. um i often hear it spoken about maybe even from you as a one of if not pta's like best films i mean it's it's tough because i mean like i think all his films are pretty much spectacular um i would i wouldn't say it's his best for me but it's it's up there for sure um i I would still probably give it to 
either There Will Be Blood or Boogie Nights are my two favorites. But I will say, visually, I think this is my favorite of his. I know a lot of people, There Will Be Blood looks amazing as well. Um, even Phantom Thread looks great. But this one, for me, uh, continually just blows me away. Okay, well, that that really reinforces the fact that I definitely should go check it out. Um, very much so on my list of things I need to check out. But um, Boogie Nights, I would say, is his most watchable film. Yeah, 100%. Uh, I've seen that movie so many fucking times. Mm-hmm. It's kind of weird to think that the porn movie is the one that Trevor's watched so many fucking times. Say, I'm, the same, that that I'm the same, man. I'm the same. Boogie Nights on repeat all all weekend long. <laughs> but... Um, but yeah, uh, Magnolia, I've only seen once, mostly because it's so goddamn long. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember being like almost mad at that movie with how skillful the editing was. Like I I was like, that is a fucking magic trick that you just pulled off. Yeah. Like, you made a long-ass movie not feel it. Oh, yeah, and every narrative thread, of which there are many, feels very cohesive and well well fleshed out. Like, like round of applause, sir. That, that was incredible. Um, but yeah, he... Had, he has a few films that I haven't seen, and uh, The Master is probably the one highest on my list to check out next. Uh, but yeah, definitely got to check that one out. <laughs> yeah, jo- Joaquin um, Phoenix's best performance, in my opinion, as well. I mean, yeah, it's it's a great... I mean, it's it, it's a weird movie, whereas like, you don't get to the end of the movie the first time you see it, and you like walk away like, oh, that was a great picture. Because it's kind of like, you know, it's the story, like what it's about... It's not like satisfying in the most traditional sense, I would say. Um, but there's so many great things about it, just from a technical aspect, the performances that uh, you know. It's and it's a movie you can have many different interpretations of, whether you're taking it extremely literally as it's presented, or is it about something else? I, I definitely think it can generate some interesting discussion. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, where was I going to go? Well, I'm going to jump on to my next one. I think this is going to be my last pick. Okay. Uh, so, I don't have a good solid pick for you. Um, so, I'll just throw I'll throw another curveball. Um, and like we did last time, I think I had a lot of fun doing a like a, a quick wrap-up. So, anything, any flotsam and jetsam you got laying on your desk right now, uh, we'll just do a, a wrap-up at the end, just like rapid fire. So mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be a whole diatribe about it, just like, bam, bam, bam. Uh, I had a lot of fun with that last time. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, my, my last pick this time out uh, is Guillermo del Toro's Crimson Peak. Oh, nice choice. Yep. And this is an aero disc. Uh, it's a very handsome case. Mm-hmm. I love the cover art. Um, what's funny, though, is like, I know we weren't talking about transfers, uh, thankfully, because that would have complicated this discussion quite a bit. Um, but what's funny about this one is that I my eyeballs tell me I don't like the transfer uh, mm. on this particular Aero disc. Um, but most reviews I've read have said it's consistent with I think it was a it was what, Warner Brothers or Universal so one like one of the major publishers. Um, but there's this weird like canvasy like checker bar checkerboard effect. It's like a, a haze that I, I see on people's faces when I watch this disc. It's very frustrating. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> because it, it's it's very apparent to me, but I was unable to find a negative review for this disc. So I don't know what, what the deal is. Maybe I got a maybe I got a lemon or something. Um but yeah, uh this movie is much like a lot of the movies I've held up. Well, 
yeah, I guess a lot of the movies I felt. Um, I don't think this is an incredible film. Um, in a lot of ways, it's kind of flat in some ways. Uh, performances are all right. The story is a little lackluster. Um, it doesn't seem to be too terribly interested in fleshing out its characters all that much. Uh, this is one of those instances, a curious instance, actually, of you know an incredible visualist, Guillermo, Guillermo del Toro, kind of doing neither showing nor telling where a lot of the story that I would like to see is mentioned offhand, but not in the film. And it's so curious, being as he's such a visual guy. Um, but the one thing that cannot be taken away from the film is uh, its production design. Uh, the sets are are the star of the show in this film. I Say what you will about the story or the performances or anything like that. Uh, the set, the, the titular Crimson Peak mansion, um, is incredible. Uh, it's a character unto itself, as any gothic horror story should be. Um, the second you arrive there, they showcase it like in all its glory. It's fucking mag- it's massive. Uh, it has so much character to it. Uh, it's the kind of thing where it's like you you just kind of want to inhabit that space for a while. And I f- every time I put this movie on, I find myself just not giving a shit about anything that happens in it. I'm just like, cool shots. Cool, mm-hmm. cool sets. <laughs> like I'm just, I'm just looking at the framing. I'm, I'm just looking at the cinematography. I could not care less about the characters. I don't know what it is about. Um, was it Mia Wasikowska? I think. Yeah. Uh, she seems like she's like handcrafted, like from the from the cradle to be in gothic horror or something. Because <laughs> she was in Alice in Wonderland and she's in this. And then I think is she in that Stoker movie? I think that's her. Yeah, yeah. See, that's a movie I haven't seen, but I remember catching the opening minutes of it and immediately deciding I needed to see it because the opening credits of that movie were aesthetically like really beautiful, um, as a lot of Korean films are. It's Mm -hmm. not a Korean film, but Korean director. Um, Curiously enough, I didn't actually pull any Korean films off my shelf because I don't have those kind of Korean movies. I have the punchy, kicky ones, not yeah. the not the artsy fartsy ones. <laughs> um, but yeah, it just seems like she has that look, like that frame that just makes directors want to put her in like poofy dresses. <laughs> it's, it's she's I guess she like fits that that waif category that um, a lot of artists seem to be enamored with, but. Um, she and Tom Hiddleston are, are fine in it. I, Jessica Chastain seems like she's in a different movie. She goes full fucking batshit crazy towards the end. It's actually kind of delightful, honestly. Where it's like, where was this? <laughs> like, the whole time we could have had this. <laughs> but I did like that it has uh, Guillermo del Toro's customary uh, gore. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, Brad, you probably know his filmography better than I do. I want to say he has a thing about face trauma. Like... I notice a lot of wounds, a lot of da- a lot of injuries in his films tend to be to parts of people's faces and or just unusual regions of the body. Like knives get placed in strange places or, or in people's faces. <laughs> I can think of Pan's Labyrinth has one very memorably. That's I, yeah, it has face stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I just remember I like face stuff. <laughs> I saw Pan's Labyrinth when I was like in middle school or something. And I was just like going around like to all my friends at school and being like, you got to check out Pan's Labyrinth. It's so good. It's like a fairy tale, but a guy gets his nose beat off. It's like, they were like, really? I'm like, yeah, you got to watch it. <laughs> yeah. And same goes for this one where we get to see a man uh, 
have his head beaten against a, a sink, like a porcelain sink, until it explodes, basically. <laughs> and also we get to see a person stabbed in the sinus cavity, um, which is not a place I think I've ever seen a, a bladed instrument placed. Um, so yeah, I think he has a thing about face trauma and and or just like strange strange woundings. Because uh, even there's even a part where Charlie Hunnam gets stabbed, and it's like not quite in the armpit, but like un- in the ribs under the armpit. Mm-hmm. It's a very awkward place for a stabbing. And ev- even his body language, he's like, the fuck? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I've been stabbed before, but why there? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Also, he is oddly cast, because I'm guessing he's a-, a holdover from Pacific Rim. Like, maybe he and Guillermo hit it off, like, on off hours or something. But he is so out of place in the movie because he's, like, super jacked, but he's wearing, like, period garb. So it's like he's, like, exploding out of his, like, prim and proper vest. <laughs> like, he looks so out of place. Very and also weird. he has his, his indecipherable Charlie Hunnam flattened out accent where it's like, where are you from? <laughs> like, like, you are from nowhere, sir. That is not an accent. You made that up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Just, yeah. I'm from Buffalo, New York, <laughs> by way of Malibu, London. <laughs> Malibu, England. <laughs> yeah, oh my he's God. he's not my favorite. He's definitely not my favorite in these movies. But uh, yeah, I got I got to rewatch that movie though. I mean, you do and you don't. It's it's. I don't think it's anyone's favorite Del Toro movie. It's just. Oddly enough, like this, this whole exercise of artful aesthetics has been pointing out to me that um, I have a lot of blind spots uh, in my movie collection, and I don't have a lot of lookers on my <laughs> shelf. Um, but more than that, I have, I don't tend to own good movies. <laughs> like I tend to own a lot of crap. <laughs> and like for instance, I don't own any Paul Thomas Anderson movies. Um, I don't think I own any Wes Anderson movies except for a. Uh, Grand Budapest Hotel, which was a gift. And uh, I don't own any Guillermo del Toro movies except for Pacific Rim and uh, Crimson Peak, which I fully acknowledge is not that great. (laughs) Let me ask you this. You don't own any Paul Thomas Anderson. You don't own any Wes Anderson. How many, uh, what's his name, Paul W.S. Anderson do you own? Is that his name? Probably six or seven. (laughs) (laughs) There is an issue. Uh, no way! It's probably it's probably like four or five because yeah, he did no, only it's... half. He only did half of the Resident Evil movies, okay. and I also have Mortal Kombat, and I was also eyeing a copy of Soldier the other day. So, so yeah, yeah, I own a lot of crap. I Dead. own up to that. No judgment. You no picked judgment. the wrong Anderson. <laughs> <laughs> you backed the wrong Anderson, Trevor. Yeah, yeah, no. But yeah, um, Crimson Peak. I don't think it's anybody's favorite gothic horror film. It has a curious lack of uh, horror. Mm-hmm. Um, the ghosts just kind of fart into the film every few minutes, don't really do anything. Um, and even their designs, like like Del Toro does a lot of his own design work. You can tell that, like, yeah, they're his products, but they're not showcased in a way that's, like, really... You don't really get any character from them. It's not like some of his other creatures from, say, like Hellboy or Pan's Labyrinth or something, where it's like you can latch onto something like you, you get something from it. it's just like oh it's a spooky red ghost lady <laughs> yeah when he when he when i think of his movies i always kind of forget about this one and uh i was kind of looking uh, i own the uh it's a universal blu-ray um so i don't have the arrow but i have to pop it into the uh the player and see if i have any similar issues to yours 
Yeah, if you have a minute, like if you remember to, give it a whirl. Yeah, because uh, it's something that my eye could not get past. Hmm. Like the whole time, yeah. the whole time, every time I put this disc in the player, I'm like, hmm. <laughs> like Charlie Hunnam's complexion is oddly checkerboarded. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that very interesting. Be. Very. Well, kind of. Only only to people like Brad and I. But <laughs> <laughs> if you're listening to this podcast, maybe you have a similar mindset. If you've made it but... this far, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I think that was about it um, as far as my artful aesthetics picks. Uh, did you want to do one more, Brad, or you want to do the uh, the big finish, as they call it on, uh, I think it's Pardon the Interruption, the ESPN show? <laughs> yeah, I can uh, just bang a few of these out quick there is the last one i will highlight maybe a little more than the others but um i'll just kind of go through these other ones i pulled off uh we've got actually most of these are uh criterions because i'm so pretentious um we've got 12 angry men which i love the way that the uh cinematography changes as the film goes on uh being shot like a lot of them slightly above eye level then in the middle of the film they're shooting at eye level and the last third of the film the very uh you know, uh, stylistically uh, shooting up at the characters and very uh, in the accusing sequences. I love that. And also just the way that it goes from day to night looks awesome. Um, the Night of the Hunter, which I need to rewatch. I've only seen it once, but a beautiful looking film. It's almost like uh, imagine a, a fairy tale, but shot with through like a noir with German expressionism mixed in there. Looks amazing. Um and uh, got to throw this one on there. Prometheus. I love Prometheus. The the sets, the costumes, the visuals. It's a just incredibly well-directed movie. Say what you will about the script. I'll say I think it's still great. But, you know, in terms of Ridley Scott's visuals and stuff like that, it's awesome. And then the last one I'll highlight here, which might be my favorite in terms of, like, cinematography, my favorite film of all time and i kind of was uh shitting on one of his early one of his films earlier in the episode but uh our boy emmanuel lubeski who shot terrence malick's the tree of life which is such an insanely beautiful looking movie um some of my favorite visuals in a movie and uh certainly works in terms of the story of it being a little bit show-offy in its visuals i love the the shot where um i don't even know how to explain it it's like where the shadows it's the kids running maybe you've seen it i don't know but it's like you it's they're running and like the sun is setting so they have long shadows but the camera is like flipped so their shadows are like framed as if it's them and then their actual bodies are like the shadow it's just like such a cool shot. It's like if you haven't seen that shot, you got to check it out because it, it's, it's an incredible shot. Um, but, yeah, Lubezki does some amazing stuff with lighting in this. Um, the whole creationism sequence is amazing. It's an awesome movie. My favorite Terrence Malick movie, although his filmography is a bit of a blind spot for me, but I love The Tree of Life. Well, uh I'll go on record saying I don't think I've actually seen a Terrence Malick film. However, I have heard you speak of him uh, quite often, mostly in the form of referencing that film. Yeah. But, uh, I love shit like that where it's like, is this a, is this an effect or is this just clever cinematography? Mm-hmm. Um, that's always so cool when, when they find a way to do that where it's like, you know, I think you get dual credit for that one because not only did you do a magic trick with the camera, you also told the fucking story. So yeah. good on you, sir. Um, it's, 
filmmaking, man. It's cool stuff. It's pretty fun. <laughs> um, it's pretty but, cool. Uh, before I plow through my pile here, um, I have a random question for you. Uh, so I know you you did a review of this. I don't remember with um, with whom, but um, nineteen seventeen. Mm. Uh, I haven't seen it, but I do know that the cinematography and the editing in particular are something that it's largely known for. Uh, what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, definitely an impressive technical achievement. Um, I did have a few issues with it, like in terms of, um, I guess the, I don't even remember exactly. Just like, I guess the story might've been, I had a few issues with, and I, I kind of took a little bit of an issue with the fact that I don't want to spoil anything, but obviously the whole thing is that it's meant to look like a long take, but I kind of was a little disappointed that there actually is a very hard cut in the middle of the movie to signify like a time jump. And I'm kind of like, man, like if you're going to go for it, like go for it. Like, I don't know. I was a little disappointed in that. Um, but it is, yeah, it's an amazing looking film. And yeah, the fact that the, what they're able to pull off is pretty incredible. Okay. Well, it's on my list of things to check out solely for technical reasons. Yeah. I, I seriously doubt I'll connect to the narrative whatsoever mm-hmm. in, in any fashion, but you know, Maybe I'll check it out someday. Not in a, not in the hurriest of hurries, but we'll see. <laughs> okay, so I have three piles sitting in front of me, and I will try to be very quick here. Uh, so speed round. <laughs> so uh, I have here a gothic pile, a uh, production design pile, and an animation pile. So we're going to go in that order. So gothic. Uh, we have the Adams Family and the Adams Family Values. Oh, yeah. Uh, wonderful cinematography, wonderful visual effects work, wonderful sets and costuming. Uh, Barry Levinson, uh, Raul Julia became a childhood hero of mine thanks to the strength of his performance as Gomez Adams in these films. I still end up quoting both of these films endlessly to this day. Uh, I'm sure we will do a review for at least one of these at some point for catching up on cinema. Uh, I have the... Uh, shitty batman box set <laughs> so brad is probably very disappointed in me this is a a hideous uh single disc like single case for four different batman films so this would be the a little gross. tim burton and the uh it, it's a little gross uh it's the tim burton and the joel schumacher era of the franchise um i'm specifically uh, referencing batman returns and batman 89 here i think both of those films are tremendous uh, from a visual standpoint a lot of it has to do with production design and sets again and costuming Uh, similarly beetlejuice 4k also directed by tim burton uh has his particular visual aesthetic like on display full bore Um, batman is definitely influenced by some other outside sources this one very much feels like straight from tim burton's brain to the fucking celluloid um May as well do some more Tim Burton, Ed, Edward Scissorhands. I think this is like a delightful film in so many ways. Uh, it's It feels like very personal uh, to him, to Tim Burton in particular, um, much like Ed Wood was, where it's it's scaled back from like his Batmans of the same era, uh, but the narrative is much more intimate and better executed. And uh, again, from a production design standpoint, the, like the color palette of Edward Scissorhands is mansion home uh and then the transition to suburbia like with the technicolor just like glowing fields and whatnot it's a it's a stark contrast that works really really well and it's a very cute film Uh, it gives off a lot of warm vibes uh gore verbinski's a cure for wellness 
brought about it up grabbing that one countless fucking times. Yeah, yeah. We've we've both brought this one up countless times on the show. I didn't feel like going into it in detail again. <laughs> um, uh, moving on to production design, Blade Runner Final Cut, Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Enough said. Uh, I have my criterion pick in here. I'm actually kind of regretting not bringing it up. Uh, Terry Gilliam's Brazil. Oh, that's uh, yeah, yeah, that's a good one. From a production design standpoint, it is a incredibly cohesive production. Um, every every setting, every locale in the film feels so lived in and fleshed out. Um, it has that particular ter- Terry Gilliam uh, quality to its design, where it I call it cluttered. Like his particular aesthetic is it's all there's just shit everywhere all the time. Like like his frame is always very very busy, um, and it just seems to be a constant throughout his filmography but i think this one is the one that executes its best and uh i've always loved this film uh mad max fury road um every fucking youtuber on the fucking planet has to go on and on but oh everything is thinner frame nobody's ever done that before it's such a revolution in filmmaking thinner frame it's like (laughs) yeah yeah nobody ever thought to do that before it's a visually astounding film i actually have never watched the uh, black and chrome version of it um, but in some ways, I don't care to. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think that's the, one. I, think I don't the, know why you would. Yeah, I I know there there were rumors that George Miller intentionally like he actually intended it for it to be presented in black and white. But I I love the color palette yeah. of the film. I think it lends a lot to it. Um, and just the just the the use of color in particular does a lot to create a mood and flesh out settings that the film is kind of noteworthy for not bothering to flesh out where it's like every time we move to a different setting, the colors tell us like what the general vibe of that locale is. Um, really cool, efficient filmmaking stuff. Another Aussie production, Razorback. Uh, this is the giant boar movie uh, that's heavily influenced by Jaws. Um, it has a, it's a Russell Mulcahy film. So the guy who did Highlander, um, really, really incredible cinematography and lighting though. Um, for a giant boar movie, like so there's some really incredible vistas in this film, like some really astounding, like natural beauty shots and whatnot. Um, Warren Beatty's Dick Tracy, we are we are doing an episode on that at some point. Uh, Kyle adores this film. I think it's beautiful to look at. And that's about it. <laughs> I I have a lot of trouble connecting to the narrative and the characters. Uh, I love a lot of the performers, like every actor in it is wonderful, but. They don't get a whole lot to do except for Al Pacino, who is wonderful in the film. Um, but Warren Beatty, if you ask me, is kind of flat. And Madonna, just get out of my movie. Like, just get <laughs> out. Like, I don't need to hear you sing four or five different fucking times in this movie. Mm-hmm. It's like, I'm a set-piece man. I don't want a montage of Dick Tracy kicking ass. I just want Dick Tracy to settle the fuck down and kick some ass for three minutes straight. I don't want to cut back to the fucking nightclub. No. I don't want songs playing over ass kickings. <laughs> no, I want entire three minutes dedicated to ass kicking. Never, never get it until the very end of the movie. And at that point, I don't care. Um, <laughs> I have a Japanese film. This is a bootleg, by the way, Brad. And it's a DVD, so oh. you can shit all over me. Uh, it's called a Kashan, uh, Kashern, if you're <laughs> if you're pronouncing it that way. But it's Kashan. Uh, it's uh, directed by uh, Kazuaki Kiria. Uh, who is a uh, J-Rock music video director. Um, J-Rock has a particular aesthetic to it. It's like one part goth, like one part heavy metal kind of. Okay. And he, he, this was, I think, his first feature film. Uh, he's only done a few others. In fact, one was an, a uh, Western production with Morgan Freeman and Clive Owen called uh, Last Nights. Hmm. 
I actually haven't seen it, but um, he's a he has an intense visual style that is entirely his own. Uh, from from a design standpoint, it's pretty incredible stuff. Um, unfortunately, technology couldn't keep up with him. Uh, this was like 2004 when this came out, and Japanese computer graphics weren't quite up to snuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so its ambition is much greater than the actual end product, but I appreciate ambition, obviously. Uh, Kingsglaive, Final Fantasy XV. This movie is terrible. It gives no fucks about whether you understand what's going on or not. Um, but I'm always a sucker for photorealistic CGI animation, and it has some cool costuming. Uh, Princess Mononoke. Duh. <laughs> uh, the Secret of Nim. Uh, Don Bluth animated feature. One of my very favorite films since childhood. Uh, it's not the most beautiful animated film you will ever see, um, but it's a labor of love, and some of the background paintings in particular are pretty incredible. Uh, have you seen that one, Brad? No, I've never seen that one. Check it out. You really, you really ought to. It's I've heard good, good things. It's yeah, little, it's a little bit more grown up than your your average uh, animated children's film from that era. Uh, I have the <laughs> the most critically acclaimed Japanese animated film that has ever been. This I only own this movie because everyone around me would not shut the fuck up about how great it was, and I hate watched it not too long ago because you you introduced the theme for this month's episode. This is your name. Um, directed directed by Makoto Shinkai never seen any of his movies before but oh my god I have never heard more praise for a film before it's okay folks (laughs) it's fine I know I'm a monster I don't I don't emo I don't like emotionally connect to romance this is something I'm learning about myself I I emotionally connect to stories about family and loyalty and things like that not so much teenage romance it's a good movie. I, it's not the best movie that's ever movied. Hey, um, but we're here to deliver those hot takes. Apparently, that's today is the day for it. But um, from an aesthetic standpoint, though, the backgrounds are astounding, um, absolutely gorgeous. Um, that seems to be a hallmark of Makoto Shinkai's style, as like Studio Ghibli productions, like Miyazaki stuff. They're they're known for their background paintings. All, almost all Japanese animation are, but this one they dial it up to a, another level. Uh, some of the images of Tokyo in particular are pretty incredible. It's a good movie. If you're in a romantic mood, Brad, maybe put it on, watch it with the lady. Probably have a good time, unless you're a soulless monster like me. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, Metropolis, not, not the uh, Fritz Lang one, but the... Uh, Japanese animated one from the early 2000s from a design standpoint it's fucking gorgeous um from a story standpoint and this is so goddamn common in Japanese animation gives no fucks as to how much you are connecting with the story it just goes and it's kind of flat from a storytelling standpoint but looks magnificent similarly uh, x the motion picture based on a very very long manga and anime uh, the movie d- makes no attempt to uh explain anything about itself it's just like if you're invested in the franchise you'll get something i will confess brad i have no connection to the franchise so even i don't know what the fuck this movie is about (laughs) but from a visual standpoint from a pure art and animation standpoint i can appreciate it Mm -hmm. but yeah this is not meant for newcomers to the series it's meant to be the culmination of things uh wings of hanamai's uh this is another kind of flat narrative, but from a visual design standpoint, the the animation is truly incredible. There's some stuff in this movie that you do not see in anything else. 
um like you get to see like the equivalent of like a rocket launch in the film like done in painstaking detail and rendered Mm. almost in like photorealistic detail it's like i can't think of another animated film that's ever tried to do that before um and it's also an animated film that's mostly preoccupied with like science and people trying to figure out how to launch shuttles it's it's a curious little movie but it's it's really beautiful to look at uh steam boy uh same director as akira uh katsuhiro otomo uh, absolutely gorgeous from a visual standpoint but even weaker from a narrative standpoint which is saying quite a bit uh, i i could not connect to this movie at all <laughs> but it's it's gorgeous it has a uh, it takes place in like victorian england um which is not something i think i've ever seen in japanese animation yeah it's kind of interesting it's really interesting actually like it's, it's a wonder to behold but good luck caring about anything that happens <laughs> <laughs> um but now for something good uh another katsuhiro otomo uh disc this used to be very rare this dvd it used to be expensive um but it's coming out on blu-ray very soon and i would actually recommend this to you brad yeah uh it's called Memories. It's a uh, anthology. Uh, it's three short animated films, all done in radically different styles, hmm. all with different um, mission statements attached to them, um, and they're all beautiful and they're pretty much all good. Um, and like I said, this this was in uh, those years where Otomo was basically just doing anthologies. Very very good, and it's coming out on Blu-ray I think next month. Um, so I'm looking forward to upgrading to 1080p because I'm I mean. These are visual films, and all I have is a shitty DVD of them. Gotta upgrade, uh, bud. Gotta upgrade. And the last thing is a, a DVD of Evangelion, the end of Evangelion. Uh, so I've probably mentioned this before on the show, but uh, Evangelion is one of those things that's like, I don't know if it's good or great or bad, but you get something from it, especially if it if you're subjected to it at a certain age. Uh, and this movie is well and truly fucked up, <laughs> but, um, and good luck understanding what's going on. Like you can, you can troll all of Wikipedia all the, all day long and you probably still won't have any fucking clue what you just saw. <laughs> but from a visual standpoint, from a design standpoint, uh, it's directed by Hideaki Anno, who is the same fellow who did uh, Shin Gojira. Mm. Um, it is astounding. Uh, it's a technical achievement for sure. Uh, they do a lot of mixed media stuff in here that's borderline experimental, and yet somehow it's cohesive. Like somehow it works. But then when it goes into like full-on visual spectacle mode, it delivers on that front as well. So it's a it's a mixed bag. It's a confusing bag. It's a crazy bag of kittens. But it's a movie. <laughs> uh, and that's all I got. I'm done. Uh, that is a lot of art we've we, we've covered a lot of art today <laughs> covered a lot of art we uh we set we set the internet on fire by by calling out steven spielberg and and <laughs> oh yeah all manner of cinematographers yeah we got all the hot takes today uh, here on catching up on cinema yeah but, i'm um, hunting i'm hunting for those dislikes i'm hunting for them now i'm hunting <laughs> now that ideas in my head i'm, I'm on the hunt baby dropping these hot takes Brad. Brad the instigator. I like it. <laughs> it's a good fit. <laughs> just, you should uh, you should start the intro of your show. <laughs> I don't like that Woody Woodpecker. He's an instigator. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but on uh, that being said, I guess that calls an end to this particular 
installment of Tales from the Shelf. Um, but before we go, Brad, uh, would you like to let the folks at home uh, know where they can find you and your podcast? Well, if they want to call me out on my hot takes, they can find me uh, on Twitter at the Cinema Speak, or uh, we're on Instagram Cinema Speak Podcast. Uh, you can find us on any podcast service you listen to. Just search for Cinema Speak or uh, go online cinemaspeak.libsyn.com. Very nice. I love it when it just rolls off the tongue like that. Now it's my turn, though. So uh, everything that guy just says, bullshit. <laughs> but if you would like to catch up on any of our other Catching Up on Cinema content, you can find all of that collected on our website at catchinguponcinema.com. Uh, we are also on the social medias in the form of an Instagram at Catching Up on Cinema, as well as the Twitter at Catching Cinema. So feel free to hit me up at either of those. Uh, and the podcast is available on pretty much any service you can imagine, including Cephalopod. Uh, so fucking Google it. Uh, but that being said, uh, thanks again, Brad, for joining me. It's always a grand old time. Always happy to have you here. And we will catch you next time.